Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking back in with one of my all-time favorite guests and someone who has been a trailblazer for positive mental health conversations and breaking down stigmas for almost as long as I have. Danny Bowman is currently studying for a PhD at Liverpool University and also works as a researcher at the institution. He is also the research lead and head of communications at the Conservative Mental Health Group and is a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts. He was also previously vice chair of male eating disorder charity Male Voice ED. In part one of Danny's pod, all the way back in Just Checking In Pod episode 70, we discussed his body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, which manifested during his secondary school education and almost ruined his life. He was also severely impacted by anxiety and social media exacerbated this as well as his BDD. He dropped out of school, became a recluse, and tried to take his own life. Thankfully, he was able to recover, chucked himself back into education, completed a master's, and is almost finished with a PhD. He's also done lots more advocacy work since we last checked in. This includes attending a roundtable at number 10 with then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, mental health research work he did concerning waiting times for community eating disorder services, which he was interviewed on Sky News about, and the number of incidents the UK police attended relating to a mental health crisis which was featured in The Telegraph. And finally, he took part in a recently published roundtable on the subject of body dysmorphia on the Lad Bible YouTube channel. Between all of that, he also ran the Great North Run to raise money for the Rethink Mental Illness charity and is about to run another marathon next year in April 2024. So this is how part two of my check-in with Danny Bowman went. Danny, welcome back to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check back in with you. It doesn't feel like more than two years ago that we recorded that part one. I hope we don't have as many tech issues on this one. It wasn't your fault that time. It was It was definitely my fault. You had the uh, patience of a saint, so bless you. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing, Freddie? Yeah, I'm okay, mate. I'm okay. I've been in a bit, bit of the wars this year when it comes to my health, but I'm hopefully on the uh, the back end of it now, so I'm hoping that by the end of this month I've, uh, I'll have cleared those all up. But mentally, mentally in a good place mate in a good place yeah, yeah. so I have almost seen your recovery play out in real time since we've chatted in the years since and you've been a very busy bee as well so you were busy bee beforehand but you've been a busy bee since we've got loads to talk about so without further delay are you ready to start the absolutely. show absolutely let's start this part two mate by picking up back where we left off on your mental health journey. So first of all, how do you reflect on your part one? What was maybe the feedback you got? And who's the Danny we meet now? Absolutely. I mean, part one was great. I had some really good feedback. So there were some people who hadn't heard my story before, 
hadn't engaged with it and yeah we're really really kind about it which is great to see and it shows how much progress that we've made and I think also on top of that to hear two lads talking so openly and honestly about mental health is is really important and and like I said I, I bring up rugby a lot but you know the rugby lads were really open about it and, and and happy about it who's the Danny we meet today probably a Danny that's a little bit more stressed a little <laughs> bit more on I think half of that's probably the PhD the other half is my workload has increased but yeah but I, I think I'm I'm in a good place I'm learning new skills right how to manage and balance different parts of my life and I, I think that's challenging but also really important because it builds that resilience. The first thing I want to discuss mate is something which you did as part of your advocacy journey but was a really big personal achievement for you which was your decision to run the Great North Run. So tell me why you wanted to do it first of all and that training process in the build-up. Yeah I mean I think there was two reasons why I wanted to do it. Number one I wanted to raise money for charity. I raised money for Rethink Mental Illness. You know I'm really passionate about the work that they do and the change that they've created really over over the years and you know I remember telling the story about Rethink Mental Illness and just how pivotal that their work has been in in my life. You know, I think back to 2006 when I, when I first started developing certain intricacies. And then in 2000, I think it was 2007, 2008, they started the Time to Change campaign, which really started to reduce the stigma around mental health. And then onwards from that they've just continuously lobbied government told lived experiences of people and it was personal to me I, I think it felt like they'd been there all along the timeline and really backed people like me so that was really mm. important secondly I wanted to challenge myself there's nothing like challenging yourself by running over 13 miles but yeah I wanted to challenge myself it also gave me routine so the idea of cutting off my PhD work at 7 p.m. at night, going to the gym, having that period of time when I could could just switch off, do the exercises I did, do the training, and feel really good mentally. So I, I think there was two sides to it, but both sides were equally as important. We both know that people with EDs or mm. BDD who sometimes fixate or obsess on exercise, it can be a trigger, it can exacerbate their ED or BDD. Were you ever worried during the training process about your mind as you did the training program about perhaps the recovery being affected by it? And if so, how did you manage that? Absolutely. And, and, and it was always a, a key worry for me, as you rightly say, as someone who's had body image difficulties in the past, I think I always had to be aware that I wasn't pushing myself ridiculously because in the past, exercise became part of the image, the routine of trying to, trying to lose weight and, and, and trying to better. So I think I was always conscious of that. But my key aim throughout it all, I mean, it would be slightly ironic, wouldn't it, if I was running for a mental health charity and to do that, I also, you know, debilitated my own mental health doing it. So I, th I think... I did that for a podcast show, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I was always conscious about making sure I was doing what I needed to do. I had a plan uh, and once that was done, I could go and, and get on with my life and, and, and just do what I needed to do. It was never going to take over and and also in a weird way it was actually good for my mental health for once you know being able to switch off put some airpods in listen to some probably very corny music because i like my corny music and and jog away so yeah so i think it was really useful can you take me back to the day itself now so how did you feel before it given all the training you'd done during it when you're you know you're hitting the wall or something like that and then when you finally made it to the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it was a really proud day, actually, because it's, it's, it's in my home city of Newcastle. So it was great to see all the Geordies come out 
to support the runners. But to be perfectly honest, I was I was nervous. I was really nervous. I had that niggly thing when I started to think I had injuries, like on the day, you know, starting to overthink myself, like, oh, my leg feels a bit tight here. Am I going to, am I going to have an issue? And then when I actually got there, I think the atmosphere in itself really helped, you know, all along the route. You had people cheering you, you had people handing you jelly babies, you had people handing you all sorts. And even at the end, I think on the 12th mile, there was somebody handing out beer. That was interesting. But what I tried to do, I mean, there was challenging moments, especially when you get to the 11th or 12th mile, there's the run into South Shields. And that's quite heavy because you think you're almost there, you can see it in the distance, but it's uh, not quite there. And, you know, there's a couple of moments there where I just had to slow myself down control my breathing and make sure I wasn't getting over-egging the, the, the last bit. But yeah, when I crossed that finish line, I felt really good. I felt really good. Mm. And it did feel like, like an achievement. And out of all the achievements that you've done in life, mate, and there's a lot of them, where do you think it ranks for you? I think it ranks pretty high, partially because it was in my home city and the background of raising money for Rethink Mental Illness. And also, to, you mentioned earlier the process, right? It was for someone who's previously had body image problems and to go through the whole training process and come out the other end mentally healthy, I think was a was a major achievement for me. So I think it was all it was a package. It was all part of the process of doing it. I want to move on to something which didn't come up in our part one, I don't mm. think. And it's something that you mentioned in your Lab Bible roundtable, which we'll discuss later on in the pod in, in different mm. parts. And it's something that you had called OCD and you had before the BDD. So was that a recent revelation? And, and how did it manifest back then symptoms-wise and maybe even interact with the BDD? Yeah, so actually, I mean, it was, it, was, it was there. So when I was 11 years old, that was the first experience I had with mental illness. I had really, really quite bad OCD from the age of 11 to, to 13. And then it kind of pivoted from that point to the BDD. The BDD was so much worse, but the OCD was really challenging. And at the time, it wasn't actually focused on on body image. It was focused on. Oh, that's interesting. It wasn't. Yeah. yeah. It, so it wasn't. It wasn't focused on body image at all. I mean, I was at the time to put it into context. I was a rugby player. I was a prop actually at the time. Anyone who knows rugby, so I was quite a quite a chunky lad, and I didn't really care whether I got a you know a cut or, a, or anything like that on my face. I, I I kind of enjoyed that. It was more focused on the idea of failure and achievement. You know, not being able to succeed, falling behind in class, all of these different things. And it manifested itself through a lot of rituals that were exhausting. You know, I'm trying to think of all of them now, but you know, counting backwards in my head, even numbers I absolutely loved, you know, all of these different things. And it was exhausting. It was my first kind of introduction kind of dry run of, of what having a mental illness was like. And it was really challenging. It was really challenging. Cause I think as a young child, to have them types of thoughts is really, really hard because you don't quite understand why you're having them. You don't really understand what mental illness is. And definitely back then I didn't. And I think there is a sense of isolation with that as well. I definitely felt isolated in my schooling. I definitely felt isolated in my friends group. And I think trying to explain it to people was really, really hard because at that time it was would have been 2006 when it first really got bad. So at that time, that was that was pre-time to change, right? So there was still very high rates of stigma. There was still a lot of misunderstanding around mental illness. And I think to push through that kind of stage was really challenging. But unfortunately, it then intersected with BDD, which is very similar, right? So it's the same obsessional thinking that happens. It just, 
you know, manifested itself through my image. And where do you feel like you are with it now? Do you feel like you've overcome it? Is it very much in the background and you just manage it? How do you feel about it? I think I've always got to manage my OCD because it almost feels like if you can imagine the scales, right? So sometimes the BDD starts hitting quite hard and then sometimes the OCD something does, about it, right? Yeah. So, I, and I think at the moment, it's definitely the OCD that I've got to watch, partially because I am doing a PhD. It is a hard thing to do and there is a risk of failure. Whether we like it or not, you know, there is a risk. And I think I've got to make sure that I'm not letting the OCD overtake that and almost dramatize it right it's a difficult thing to do anyway without OCD saying that you have to work an extra 10 hours in the office right just to just to get it done or you're going to fail but you know to be open and honest it, it is always a challenge right you've always got to balance these things and you've always got to make sure that you're you know we're calling this the checking in podcast you need to check yourself right and make sure that you're doing everything you can to to prevent it from occurring well let's talk about the PhD now so you're studying a PhD at the moment at the University of Liverpool so after completing your master's, why did you take this decision to continue studying in mm. academia? And how are you managing your studies alongside your advocacy work and your mental health? Because it's not an easy task, is it? No, it's, it's, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I think just to answer the first question, the reason I decided to continue was mental health, right? So I wanted to continue helping people with mental health problems. My PhD, ironically, is on mental health policy. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a lot of irony in this podcast. A lot of irony in this podcast, a lot of it. Uh, so I'm looking at the politics of mental health. So looking at how political parties have interpreted mental health policy and whether they differ and diverge, which has given me some amazing experiences, right, of interviewing quite high-level politicians and, and asking them about it in an academic sense. So all of that is great, and it's, it's opened so many doors to do that. And I've got a great supervisory team that supports me all the way. Very conscious, of course, of mental health as well, which is good to see in academia. So I think all of that is really good. Where the challenges come in is definitely the workload, right? So, you, you know, I do spend most weeks multitasking. One minute I'm working on a report for a think tank, the next minute I'm working on, you know, transcribing interviews or writing up a chapter. The next minute I'm thinking about, or I was thinking about, you know, how am I going to run this great North Front? So there's a lot of balancing there. But I think what I try to do is set myself targets and make sure that I complete them within the week, but I do it in a very flexible manner to, to not put me in a position where I'm pushing myself to the absolute limit. And I think that's really important, but it's not an easy thing to do. And it's PhD, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's very scary sometimes. Uh, well, how do you find the time then to relax and, and properly switch off without that little niggle in the back of your mind that every good student had? I had it definitely when I, when I used to do my uh, undergrad, which was like, I should be working right now, or I should be I should be writing something right now instead of relaxing. I'm glad you said that, Freddie, because I, I, I have the same predicament. So it is really hard to switch off, I've got to be honest, because when most of your life is revolving around one issue, right, most of the time, ironically, is mental health, right? So most of the time I'm thinking about, okay, well, what's the next policy route I can look at? What do I need to do with this chapter to make it work properly? Is the data correct, which is the bane of my life at the moment? It's all things, but... My saving grace is probably Disney Plus and Netflix, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, coming home, 
sometimes quite late, nine or ten, and and just sitting and watching some meaningless show like Modern Family, right? Just able to switch off and look at it is is really good for me. And I I try to do that. And I'm still trying to keep up the gym as well because uh, I've decided to sign up for a marathon in in April. I have to get the date right. Manchester Marathon. So I think all of these things, it's just knowing what works for you. And Netflix, Disney Plus, and a little bit of jogging is, is how I stay sane. I want to talk about your recovery now in the context of that lab bible roundtable. So at one point in the discussion, you refer back to your past and you say, I was pulling myself apart for hours a day. Now, I'm going to use a slightly outdated and stigmatizing phrase here, but because it's a pun, have you pulled yourself back together now, would you say? Uh, you know, I, I think I think you can never completely pull yourself back together, right? I think it's important to to remember that. There's always going to be, and it'd be wrong of me to come on a podcast like this and say, you know what, everything's perfect. I'm completely recovered and I never have a bad thought in my head. That That's just not true. It is hard and it's a constant battle and it goes back to knowing the specific things that work for you. How do you manage to relax, for example? How do you manage to normalize the thoughts that you get when you they're saying that you're going to be a failure you know all of these things i'm constantly thinking about as i'm going through the process but generally i think i'm, I'm as put together as i possibly can be as a normal human being and I, I think that's really important to remember you know perfection is impossible i've said that so many times but it, it really is and i'm definitely not perfect there's another point in the video where you describe what the depths of that BDD was like. And you said, you're searching for a problem that's not there. And if there's not a problem, you'll make it a problem. So how do you deal with problems in your life now, knowing what your previous problematic behavioral habits used to be? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, I think I try to normalize things. So I try to think, okay, what would someone who doesn't have BDD or OCD think about this? What is the normal threshold here of doing it? Would a normal person, because they had a bad thought about they're going to fail in their work, would they go and then work 10 extra hours in the office and not get home till 1am in the morning? Probably not, right? And I think it's about having that conversation with myself and thinking, well, what is the normal barriers here? I don't always succeed, and I think that's important to say, but actually having that time to just contemplate what I'm doing and, and, and thinking about is really important but you know I never want to go back to how how it was because as I said the idea of pulling yourself apart every single day is exhausting and funnily enough it's not very good for your mental health either. A lot of my regular listeners mm. will know how much I live by the saying by a comedian Miss Pat who said if you can laugh about your pain you own it and at various points you laugh about your story in a way that I didn't see the other panellists doing. Maybe they haven't reached that point yet. Do you feel like you own your story now? I think I do. You know, I think there's a slight irony from the start in my story. The fact that both my parents are, are mental health professionals and my sister's a mental health nurse. And I always say, well, I'm the mental one. You know, it's like the weirdest dynasty ever. <laughs> you know, so I, from the beginning, my story is slightly ironic, really. Um, <laughs> but But I think actually going through the experience and all the the horrible things you experience when you're going through a mental illness you have to find laughter in it you know you, you have to be able to to find sections of it that that are pretty funny right you look back at it and you think god i was doing that to myself all day why was i doing that 
So, yeah, I mean, I think you do need to laugh about it. I'm very conscious that for other people, they're not at that stage. But I do find a bit of humor in in the whole process and and just looking back and thinking, well, that happened, you know, (laughs) is quite funny. There is a danger, I feel, sometimes in discussions like this, where there's a huge amount of trauma dumping and disclosure. And there's either a conscious or subconscious concern maybe it's going to turn into some sort of victim at olympics or hierarchy whatever and thankfully i don't think that conversation went there which was really good were you conscious in your own contributions of pushing a message of hope and recovery from your perspective absolutely and i'm always really conscious about that because i i think on the one hand you know it's important to stay level and say look it was a difficult time i did struggle quite a lot but at the same accord it's about also saying well yeah, but look at where I am now, okay? And I'm not an exceptional person. Everyone can get to that point, right? If I can do it, anybody can. And it's hard and it, it is difficult to get to, to get to the point I'm at. And as I alluded to, there are still moments where I have to, to watch myself. But actually, the courage it takes a lot of people just to get through them stages, it does take a lot of courage and it does take a lot of time. And you have to also be willing throughout that process to slightly fall on your face and not always get it perfect and make mistakes. And I've made a, a fair share of mistakes, but to get to that point where you feel, you feel like things are, things are improving and that there's nothing weak and there's no victimhood within the people around that panel. I was, I was really inspired mm. by them. Um, 100%. They're incredible people and, and they should be immensely proud of themselves. Well, my final question before we reflect is on that point where there's a really touching moment where you, you make those compliments to them and you, and you say how inspiring all of them are and, and how they've used their experiences to help others. Was that a conscious effort to take on a sort of mentor role? And, and do you see yourself moving into that role more as you get older and continue your recovery? Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a conscious effort, but I think I always, I always think when we're having these discussions, you have to make sure that I mean, especially the people that were around that circle, they were so brave to actually come on and and say the things that they said. And also on top of that, I know a lot of their work and what they do to actually then take the leap to help others and look beyond yourself and do that. I really felt that they needed to know that and they needed to be told that actually, look, you're doing a great job and what you're doing, whether it's lab Bible or anything else you do in your life, you're making a difference. And I think every campaigner needs to be told sometimes that actually what they're doing is making a massive difference to people because you don't, you know, a lot of people do a lot of campaign, they don't get told it enough, that actually what you're doing is changing, changing people's lives. They may not come to you and say, thank you so much, but they are changing the discourse around and the, the you know, the, the contents around, around this discussion and they should be ex- incredibly proud of themselves. Well, you're making a massive difference, mate. And I didn't, I didn't hear, I didn't hear it in the video, but so I'm saying it yeah. to you now, you're making a massive difference. And I think you have genuinely been a trailblazer for a lot of these issues. You were one of the first people I saw who was talking about BDD and you've just continued to go from strength to strength. So I think you should be really proud of yourself. I as well, appreciate mate. that. Thanks, Freddie. Let's reflect on your continued mental health journey, mate. So from when we spoke last to when we're speaking now, what has this period taught you about yourself? It's probably taught me some of my weaknesses and some of my strengths, right? So I think 
throughout this process I keep going back to the PhD but I think it's probably been the most mentally <laughs> challenging thing I've I've ever done and I think a lot of academics would agree with that it's a process where you're constantly almost perfect not good enough right so they're constantly pushing you to do better and better and better and I think through that I've dealt with it sometimes in a negative way by working way too many hours and driving myself to exhaustion on the other hand I've also managed to recognize that and and balance that out and show mental resilience okay so I think it's shown some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses and a lot of the weaknesses are important because you learn from them and you're able to, to kind of move on. But in no way at all would I say this process has been easy, but it's, it's worthwhile and it's, it's, you know, it's hopefully it will help. We've talked about your mental health journey, mate. I wanna now talk about this brilliant advocacy journey that you've continued to do since we chatted. So first of all, tell me about the round table at number 10 you attended with then prime minister boris johnson which feels a very very long time ago now <laughs> yes sorry it does feel so long ago we've had we obviously had two prime ministers since then but yeah it was a surreal experience if it's okay i just want to give a shout out as well to chloe wesley who kindly invited me to come along to this she's done some great work on mental health when she was a, an advisor in number 10 so big shout out to her and, and for all she did yeah i mean it was it was a surreal experience walking down you go through the main gates and you kind of walk down this road directly towards towards the door and actually i missed i've got to be honest i missed number 10 <laughs> <laughs> because I, I had this idea that you'd go round and you don't do that so you had like these two police officers at the bottom going like that to me um so so i actually missed number 10 which was a bit embarrassing but actually that feeling of walking through walking through that black door is is quite surreal it held a special importance to me i think because a lot of the time doing the advocacy work and especially in in, in the party i'm in as well it's been quite grueling right because this isn't a natural issue that that people have spoken about before right so if you think even 2014 mental health was not on the agenda it wasn't it wasn't a primary issue that parliamentarians were talking about so the idea that you'd have a round table and not just one but two or three round tables at number 10 about mental health and about mental health policy and you also at that time had you know the minister for mental health coming to these events it was Gillian Keegan at the time she's great having her come to the event and, and really listen to you and then the weirdest moment was Boris Johnson coming around the corner and, and, and sitting down and having this round table with the Prime Minister about mental health. And for all the faults and difficulties of all of that, I'll always be very appreciative to the Prime Minister for, for doing that and, and for coming along and having them open and honest discussions. And I was able to talk about my story within that experience. And when the leader of the country comes along regardless of who it is and actually gives you the time to listen to your story I think that's really really important and also on top of that I was just a massive political nerd throughout the whole whole bit of it and I also I went up the stairs and I said something really embarrassing I was like oh these are the love actually stairs because of the stairs you're not wrong yeah, though <laughs> yeah that, that he danced down as he was uh as he was going apparently it was filmed there so so I, I did say some funny things as well when i was when i was in there but what an experience to go into number 10 and talk about mental health on a deeper level did it feel like a full circle moment because you're in the most powerful building in the uk 
You're speaking to the most powerful man in the country at the time, arguably. Eight years earlier, you were in your bedroom, seriously ill, a recluse, and pretty powerless. It did feel slightly surreal to, as you said, to go to number 10, the most powerful buildings in the country, and speak to the Prime Minister about my experience and what I wanted to see happen from that point. So yeah, it did it did feel like full circle, but I think, and you'll know about this as well, that feeling that it's never really enough. You always feel like you need to do more, okay? So it was a great experience for me to go to number 10 and, and good for me. I got got my picture outside the door and had a, had a, lovely, uh, a lovely experience in there. But the real work is, is the work on the ground, right? Where you've got to be able to change attitudes in everything you do. Everything from, you know, working with charities to, you know, uh, supporting future campaigners to get their voice out there to doing a PhD, um, you know, all of this work is equally as important to make sure that we're, we're getting it going. But I've got to be honest, it was a great, it was a great day out. Let's talk about all that important work, mate, because you've done a lot of really good on the ground stuff. So the first one I want to talk about is some really important research work you did around waiting times for community eating disorder services in the UK. So tell me about the state of play and what solutions maybe did you propose through the research too? Absolutely. So I, I decided to do this research last December because I obviously I recognised that eating disorders specifically obviously were, were a major issue. I wasn't quite sure what the state of play was around waiting times. I'd heard a lot about it, but I thought, OK, well, if I can do this research and see what the results are, they may not be you know newsworthy results, but it doesn't really matter. I just want to see what the state of play is. And unfortunately, what I found is huge disparities between different areas so so in in certain areas there was much higher waiting times than in others and and that's a real concern for me right because you know you can't control where you're born and that has such a massive difference on whether you get the support that you need or not mm. the postcode lottery so to speak postcode yeah. lottery absolutely and too many people are losing out on that lottery so i think i was determined to make sure that when i did do the the work with sky news that I almost wanted the government to reflect on, first and foremost, the lived experiences of people. So I thought it was really important that they had more people, uh, people like Hope Virgo, for example, who are really pushing this topic. It should be the Queen, Hope Virgo, now, to I mean, realize how she, much work she, she's, she's done. She's incredible. She is absolutely yeah. incredible. She's a, she's a force of nature. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I feel like the government doesn't always listen to these people. And they're the experts, by not only by experience, but everything that they've done. So that was really important. Because I was very aware that it was a conservative administration as well, I also wanted to reflect on the economic arguments, right? So I made it very clear that, you know, eating disorders cost the economy around nine billion pounds every single year. And more people die from it. It is the mental illness which kills the most amount of people, yeah, to be blunt. Absolutely. And, and it's, you know, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable, really. And I just, I think I wanted to frame it in a way that certain people who wouldn't normally engage in it could understand it right play in the room mate play in the room, absolutely <laughs> and and it does cost the economy a lot of money but we've also got to look within that the life chances that are lost there are some of the most amazing people i've met who who have an eating disorder and are fighters every single day we're losing something okay if we don't help them and support them so i think it's vitally important i think i stress that that we do have that 
extra investment and also expand the choice of services available for people with eating disorders, which I think is really important. But we almost most certainly must always focus on recovery. Okay, recovery is the key because it is possible. And I think we need to engage with that conversation. And outside of the postcode lottery, what other factors contribute to the delay? So, for example, is it simply a lack of funding? Is there a massive increase in demand where more and more people are going to the service? Social media is creating a social contagion mm. amongst teenage girls predominantly, but also increasingly teenage mm. boys like yourself was, Danny. What lays at the heart of the problem? Is it all of these? Is it none of them? Is it a combination? I think it's multifaceted. And obviously, I wouldn't want to blame any one source. I think it is different. There isn't, you know, we know historically mental health services as a whole have not been invested in enough and i think we don't have enough investment we don't have enough routes for people to access services and what we're also finding is because people are waiting so long they're becoming more acute which inevitably means that their needs are much more extensive so that's really important and that yet again goes back to the economic argument i'm saying if you can address these early we won't need to spend loads of money on inpatient support and things like that. So I think that's really, really important. There is a rise, obviously, in in young people experiencing eating disorders. We've seen that. It's multifaceted. Obviously, social media is playing. Yeah, I'm always very critical of social media. Social media is playing a, a big role. But I think there's also other factors. And I think it's about making sure that people have enough awareness about what eating disorders are. They can identify it early. And also reducing that stigma. There is still a stigma around whether it's women or men around opening up about an eating disorder. Some people, I, I've heard these comments, some people don't think they're, they're real, you know, they're real things or they think that actually people are just, you know, being a bit soft. This is the type of rhetoric you have to deal with on a daily basis when you're doing a lot of this work. So it's about raising that awareness and really encouraging the voices of people with lived experience to get out there and uh, encourage more people to come forward. From your perspective, Danny, there is a narrative in the mainstream conversation around mental health generally, which I sometimes get quite annoyed Mm. about. And it's people who say, oh, just reach out. If you're struggling, just reach out. And from your perspective, what you've obviously found is that when people do reach out at one stage, they can't get the access to the services and then they become worse and worse. Maybe they do get access at crisis time, but that's not what we Mm. want. So when you get asked this in interviews or maybe the interview isn't maybe across their brief as much, how do you respond to that? I think it's really important. I always say we've overcome the first barrier of mental health. We've overcome the stigma part, right? I think there is still stigma there, of course, and we still need to keep battling that. But if we're going to do that, we have to make sure that the services are available for people. It's not enough to say, open up about your mental health if then you go forward to get access to treatment and then can't access it. It, it, It's just ridiculous. So we need to make sure that we've got the infrastructure available so people can access it. So for example, this week alone, the government has invested five million pounds in mental health hub pilots, okay? An amazing opportunity to potentially get early intervention at an early stage so people can access these things and not actually need to go further down the line for clinical services. That's not a solution for everything. And there does need to be extra investment in community mental health services to make sure they're available. But I think by expanding the options that people have, we have you know school support teams, we have mental health hubs that have just been invested in for pilots. And having that choice to actually get the support early is really important. 
like you said, you were interviewed on national television for the first time on Sky News as part of the work you were doing on this with the uh, wonderful Sarah J. Me, who I have a massive political <laughs> crush on. So I watch Sarah J. Me. It's like that Simpsons episode where he talks about Arthur Fortune. He's like, oh, Arthur Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> <He's wonderful. laughs> so googly eyes. Did it feel like a big moment for you just being in that studio? Like, how did you control your emotions, first of all, and be able to articulate yourself properly when it's... You know, it's it's Sky News. Yeah. It's important. I, I think I always try to, I always do this thing before I, I do anything like this, whether it's a speech or whether it's a, a thing where I just take a massive breath in and then breathe out. I know it sounds silly, but it actually works. Does that send to yourself? Does it make you more present or grounded? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I, I always remember when I'm when I'm doing these things is these people are just, you know, they're people, right? If The more I worry about it, the more likely it is to go wrong. Okay, and the more likely mm. it is, I'm not going to get out thing i also make sure i'm on top of my brief right so i always make sure that i've got three key points that i they draw up what do i want to get out of this interview it's not just to be on tv it's actually what can i do in this interview to make people engage in this topic and I, it's a lot easier when it's research because there are some key points that you want to you want to do you look at the figures and you say well x y and z amount of people are experiencing this this is what's currently available this is what needs to change to address this. So actually having that. And also remember, we're talking about a very human topic, right? We're talking about mental health. So showing a bit of humanity in the interviews and not sounding like a, a chat GPT um, <laughs> bro, is, is, is important. So, you know, I, I try to, to bring the human side to, which I think, you know, we've got to remember people are experiencing this on a daily basis and, and we need to meet their needs. I want to move on to some other really important work you did around the number of incidents that the police attend which relate to a mental health crisis. So what are the numbers and do you think the police have the correct training to deal with them? Because part of me feels like, I mean, the police are getting a lot of very justified mm. flack at the moment, but it does feel like it's slightly unfair that this falls on the police's shoulder alone. Absolutely. And I, I was very conscious of that. There's some great people doing work work on, on this area. So I, I want to, I'm going to shout out another person there, Matthew Scott at the Police and Crime Commissioner for Kent. He's done a lot of work on mental health and the police, and he's the one who actually alerted me to some of the some of the issues that was going on. So the numbers are, I mean, I found almost a million incidents wow. where we're dealing with mental health crises. So, From what period? So that was one year. No yeah. way! In just yeah, in the in, UK? Just in the UK, yeah. So that includes Police Service of Northern Ireland, Police Scotland, Bloody um, hell. and the four in Wales as well. So it's... It's massive. But yet again, it goes back to the previous thing we were talking about. If people don't have access to services, they're going to reach a crisis point and somebody's going to need to be there. And I think the police do the best they possibly can to deal with these situations. You know, a lot of police forces have invested in training to support mm. people, to support the police in, in, in dealing with it, but they're not mental health professionals. I think we've got to be careful when we say the police shouldn't turn up to any of these incidents because you know I think it's more about collaboration so for example a mental health nurse coming along with the police officer during a mental health crisis so they can address it and signpost people to the correct correct place is really important because you've got that dual knowledge I think we've got to be careful not to name a specific police force but a police force this week for example has, has cut off is now not turning up to specific incidents, mental health related incidents. And I think that's a bit of a risk because I think if somebody's in a crisis and they may need the application of a, of a section 136 or, or whatever, 
it's important that you've got as much expertise there and as much support there as possible. Well, that was my next question because the Scotland Yard chief who advocated for this move defended it by saying the move will free up 17,000 hours a month to fight crime in the specific area of the place that he is from. And the new program, which is called Right Care, Right Person, where operators can only send officers to an incident where there is a risk to life or serious harm. Now, the key question for me is here, how do they determine which incident fits into that category? As we both know that for men, we can play down how we're truly feeling on the phone to our family, to our loved ones, because we maybe it's sometimes it's stigma. Sometimes it's just we just want to feel like we can kind of get on with it and we don't want to be a burden to others. So do you think it may create more problems than it solves? I think it's a massive risk. I mean, I wouldn't have taken the approach that Scotland Yard's taken. Right. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have taken that approach. I don't think these issues are, are black and white. So you can't just go from one extreme to the other. And, you know, do I recognise some of the concerns that the Met Chief brought up? Of course I do, right? It, it does take a lot of police time. If you're going to an incident and then have to wait with someone in accident and emergency for eight hours, that's taking an officer off the beat. And I completely understand that and, and, and have sympathy with that. However, as you rightly said, people do play down incidents. And I've got to be honest, I think if somebody is calling the police because of their mental health, they probably reached the end of the road, right? You know, most people will not just immediately go, okay, I'm in a mental health crisis. What am I going to do? I'm going to call the police. They wouldn't want that, really. They don't really want that. Mm. They probably want a health professional. That's what they need. So there are ways to work around this. There's some great schemes around the world that are being used. So number one, I talked about the idea of a mental health nurse going or being in the car with a, with a police officer who attends these incidents. There's also mental health entrances. There's the scheme around the world where they do mental health entrances at A&E departments to kind of speed people through. And I also think there's some other schemes where they have crisis cafes. I know in Kent, they've got some crisis cafes where people can go if they're in crisis and the officer can leave them there and then get back onto the beach. So there's a ways around this, but I think the approach taken by the Met Chief is a bit irresponsible to put it bluntly i think it's i think it's a bit irresponsible i think it's very short-sighted i'm hoping that as time goes on it'll get become a bit more developed and people get a bit more sensible about it but not all police forces are taking this approach just just to say that important to say there is a level of autonomy there and different services are not doing this so i don't want to brand the entire like it's entire place it's one one service and that work was also featured in the telegraph which is a really big positive achievement for you too mate let's move back to the lab bible roundtable from an advocacy perspective so first of all how did it feel to be even asked to go on the panel? Because there's a lot of people that I, through the research, I hadn't, I'd heard of one of them, let's be put it that way, purely from my own knowledge, but a lot of them I obviously hadn't, and they were all very well kind of known in their own rights within the BDD and ED sphere. So how did it feel to be asked to go on there in your own right, basically? I think it was amazing to, to go on Lab Bible. I've got to be honest, when I first got the email, I thought Lab Bible. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so did I, mate. <laughs> this is a bit of a risk. But I, I tend to take the approach with a lot of these things that actually, you know, I could shy away from it and not do it. Or reach an audience that you potentially wouldn't. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah. the Lad Bible audience, I mean, I'm not sure on the specific demographics, but, but I've got in mind what the demographics might be. And this is an area, you know, a group of people who probably wouldn't speak about mental health normally. 
So actually, at risk of getting a couple of negative comments that, you know, inevitably you're going to get, instead of not reaching out to this community which struggles to speak about mental health, I think I chose the latter because I, it is important. But like I said, there's always a risk that you will get negative comments or yeah. it will be perceived the wrong way. But I've got to say to Lab Bible, they did a brilliant job. Yes, they did. And, and I've seen other panels in this format on other issues, on other channels, do it badly. And the, yeah, there is an element of doing it for clicks or asking people who they know will have conflicts and stuff. Mm. So I think they did a really good job, to be fair to them. I also thought it was a really refreshing change and something that I talk about a lot to have made the panel 50 50 mm. in regards to sex balance. So did you feel more empowered to speak more openly and confidently just having the two other lads, George and Charlie on the panel with you, as opposed to if it was you and five other girls, because I imagine your advocacy is in the early parts were a bit lonely in that respect. There wasn't a lot of lads talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was, it was really refreshing. And, and you know, George and Charlie did an amazing job. I think having it 50, 50 also reflects BDD, right? Well, just about, I think it's 60, 40 in relation to BDD. So 40% lads, 60% women. So they did reflect the general general trend. You mentioned my earlier stuff. Yeah, it was quite hard actually, being feeling like the only man in the in the room. Same mate. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I mean you know what it's like, Freddie. It is quite a hard thing to do and it does take a lot of courage to do so, which which of course you've you've shown time and time again. So, you know, it is a bit lonely. To have a panel like that that is fifty fifty, it does empower you to talk about it from a male perspective and be open and honest about it and also you probably noticed in the interview that we shared a lot of commonalities right so yeah. you know yeah. I, I remember george saying about rugby right and i was just like oh great you know finally, finally someone, someone else speaking <laughs> about rugby you know I thought, I thought it was quite timely as well with the rugby world cup going on at the same time mm. but yeah i mean they're just small intricacies that you recognize and the difficulties and the barriers that you face being a man were resolved through having three of us on the panel you spoke earlier in the pod about never being able to be perfect, right? And that was one of the lines you said in the Lab Bible discussion. I loved it because I think it was really pertinent. Mm. So moving further than that, how do we take that message and give a positive one to the young lads coming up? Because so many of them, for good reasons, want to look after themselves. So many of them also for good reasons, want to, want to look good for girls and improve their dating skills and all of that. And that's fine. But when it becomes an obsession is when it, we know it, it can become problematic really mm. quickly. So how do you think we give the positive message? Well, I think the positive message is, I, I, you know, I say this a lot, but the biggest strength you can have is having positive mental health and also... Role, role models, models as well. Well, yeah, yeah, and opening up when you need support. There's no weakness in that. I know it sounds cliche, but, it, but it's really, really important. And I think what is really important about having discussions like this is getting into areas where there is that masculine culture. So Lad Bible was a was a good example of that. But also we're talking on a you know a ground level, gyms, for example, getting into gyms and talking and linking it in almost with the process. You know, I, I know I know a lot of rugby lads, for example, who, you know, manage their food and go to the gym and they have a, a process. Why aren't we talking about mental health within that process? Because it's equally as important for a training plan as anything else. And I think it goes back to the point of trying to merge that message into the norms that these lads have. And I think it's really important. And also that perfection is impossible. But I think we need to go further than that and really recognise yes. 
the types of communities, what they stand for, and how we can reflect our approach to make it understandable to them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You spoke about a double stigma men feel who have an ED or BDD. Tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, so obviously there's the first stigma of, of, of having a mental illness, which is hard enough to deal with still. But then you're talking about body image and you're talking about the way you look and you're a lad and every lad will know if you walked into the rugby changing room and said, mate, lads, I'm, I'm worried about my my weight or I'm worried about my my skin or, you know, all these different things, you would be absolutely bombastic. I mean, you would you would get it thrown back in your face. I guess it depends on the severity, though. If, if you're saying like, yeah. yeah, I think if you're if you've got severe acne yeah. and you're saying that, I think there would be more of a general understanding. But if you on the surface looked completely fine mm. in air quotes, maybe there would be a lack of education. Like I think say. so. Yeah. I try to be optimistic. Yeah, no, no, I try no, to be optimistic. Absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, <laughs> correction. I'm, yes, I would say that probably if there was an obvious thing there, there might be a bit more understanding. But but even then, you know, I mean, yet again, I can only judge this off my experience. And my sure. experience would probably be that even if you had a spot, for example, and you're really overthinking about it, you'd probably get riffed a little bit if you were to talk about it. Mm. So, and I think that's really, really, really hard. But I, I do think that that stigma is slowly reducing. I think lads are becoming yes. more more open about their mental health because they recognize it as something that's equally as important as their physical health. But there's still a long way to go. And I think that double stigma is still there and it's something i experience when i do the work i do when i talk about what i'm when i'm on about as soon as you mention body image and you're a lad suddenly there's almost like a a groan there's like a face like oh okay right yeah Mm. Mm. you know and 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 that's something we we need to get over because it is still a a major issue do you think going deeper here for a lot of straight lads because Mm. in gay culture you know there's probably a lot of body Mm. image issues as well but because there's perhaps a more overt stereotypical way they take care of themselves maybe there isn't that Mm. stigma on the surface but for a lot of straight lads is a part of the taboo here or shame that eating disorders in their view stereotypically affect females more and the care over your looks or even obsession over your looks is perhaps seen Mm. is perhaps seen as a more stereotypically feminized behavior so when men do it Mm. do they think they feel emasculated because it's not something men do in air quotes. Absolutely, and I, I think I mean you mentioned the word feminine, right? I think I think that's what most men worry about. That actually, by worrying about their appearance, that by speaking about their appearance or asking questions about it, they are being feminine, right? And that's an important issue. And also, they're probably worrying that people are going to look at them a certain way or, or think certain things or whatever. And that's still a problem. I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We've still got a major issue mm. with that, especially among straight lads of talking about these things because of them worries. But I'll tell you, you go down any gym in this country and you walk in and you'll see how much emphasis a lot of lads put on the way they look, their body image mm. and things like that how do we then get into them communities and say to them look that's fine you're obviously emphasizing your body image but is this a problem or are you are you struggling a bit or how you know how is this affecting your mental health and i think when you put it in terms that they can understand in maybe a gym environment you can get through that because like anyone will know you go to the gyms you see how much emphasis and how 
how much pressure lads put on medically emphasis too as well absolutely absolutely so there is that i mean it's it's clinical the way they're doing these things and it's just about how we introduce mental health into that conversation which is which is really important and where do you see the conversation going forward then before we reflect you know what areas do you think we need to tackle first what do you think is not being spoke about even in this issue which we are being very open Mm. about you know i i I think as I said, where I'd want the conversation to go. And I think what we need to do is get into these communities, especially amongst lads and talking about these issues. But we're mostly kind of listening to them and how they want to talk mm. about the issue or how they... They need the to be issue. listened to, mate. I don't think there's enough listening right now at all. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, I think by doing that, you can also get, get across to them. I think more broadly on mental health, there's. I think we've got to be really careful with the direction we choose. I'm already seeing in Parliament that mental health is being less talked about so we've kind of had this spike and then it's kind of gone down slightly so i think it's about pushing that conversation and making sure that we're doing it but also making it more sophisticated how we're talking about mental health you know yes. i think we've moved on from the okay it's important to speak out kind of thing we need to move it's not 2016 anymore <laughs> it's not 2016 anymore you know it's, it's it really isn't and we've got to become more sophisticated how do we build a mental health system for the future that puts prevention first ahead of cure, I think would be would be a key thing I, I'd talk about. How do we enable people to get early intervention very quickly? How do we make sure that people are educated on mental health? In the right way, by the way, because there's a lot of people saying, let's educate about mental health, but then you go, well, if you put that in schools and that would probably fuck up the kids more than if you didn't. <laughs> this is so. this is something interesting that, that has come up in a lot of the interviews I've done is this concern around over-medicalizing things, right? Yes. That actually, Correct. you know, if you go on TikTok or you go on, you know, Snapchat or whatever, there'll be yeah. certain things that we're kind of introducing clinical terminology. Self-diagnosis. It's self-diagnosis, social contagion, mate. DIDs, mm. only 50 or people have ever been diagnosed with it properly. Mm. TikTok Tourette's, all that stuff. Absolutely, and I, I couldn't agree more. So I think that's a worry. And also it has a knock-on effect because you get a lot of people who are then coming forward for help that don't really meet that clinical threshold, which then congests the system, which means that people who really need the help can't get the help that they need. So I think education is really important and early prevention measures, early intervention. I think mental health hubs are a great thing. I'm hoping they go beyond the pilot to expand outwards. And I think having school support teams are good but i think we've got to make sure that that's as much about educating people as it is about diagnosing or identifying because in the right way way, absolutely i sometimes get quite pessimistic about this man you're a very optimistic (laughs) i don't know well you, you you may have a different perspective on this but do you get frustrated with the mainstream conversation now it just seems to pop up on on awareness weeks and then the awareness weeks kind of just repeat the same thing I've been hearing since I started Venom, mm. which is six years ago. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of actual emphasis on mental illness still or really deeply stigmatised issues in men. It just seems to be men need to talk, men need to talk. And it's like, well, A, not all men need mm. to talk because not all men will be helped by it. And B, are they being listened to, the ones that are being that are talking? Or you are you just telling them to talk and then when they say something then you go oh actually but not about not about that issue no 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 be quiet about that issue absolutely and and this goes back to making it more sophisticated right so there is a lot of good work going on behind the scenes but i think it's so easy to just say talk about these things okay 
when actually, as we've discussed throughout this podcast, there isn't the, always the support available for people when they do speak about these things. We've got to make sure that when we are talking about mental health, we're not, as you said, over medicalizing the condition and actually making sure that we're raising awareness of what mental illness is. So if people do need help, they can get it whilst also not introducing a language too early on to yes language is very important um so Mm. i think all of these things i am optimistic i think because when i think back to when i was first diagnosed with with ocd in 2006 and how far we've come yes we have come we have come a long way i I do admit that change change (laughs) takes a long time right so i think we're now on the i'm impatient mate i'm just (laughs) (laughs) i mean i am too but i'm just way too optimistic for my own good i think but yeah i mean i just think we need to pivot from the kind of basics to more sophisticated discussions around, okay, how can we meet the needs of people who really need support? And how can we make sure that we're educating people? So number one, they're aware of what mental illness is. And number two, are aware when they do need to access the treatment. And as we reflect on this advocacy journey continued, mate, what has been your proudest achievement so far, do you think? I think I know it sounds weird because because all the all the work I mean there's a personal achievement and there's broader achievement I'd say personally education's been a, a big part of my recovery I'd say so I think doing the PhD is a major achievement for me and almost getting to the end of that would be incredible I think from a broad perspective it's almost like a package it's been part of this whole process of working with some amazing people meeting some amazing people and seeing that change slowly happen, I think is really, really important. And that's been a proud moment for me to be part of that in a small way. So there's a long way to go. There's a lot of work still to do, and I'm very conscious of that. But we must never forget, you know, how far we've actually come. And as a final question, mate, what has this continued advocacy journey taught you about yourself too? I think it's taught me how determined I am to make a difference and how much this all means to me. It sounds weird to say that after spending like 10 years doing it, but actually, (laughs) you know, there are moments when you think, God, this is so tiring. I've got a million different things I'm doing. I'm trying to balance everything. And then I've got to remember, you know, why am I actually doing this? You know, what is the reasons I'm trying to do this? And it comes down to the fact that I just feel incredibly passionate about making sure nobody experiences what I did. So that is really important. And I think secondly, I've learned, as I mentioned earlier, I've learned some of my flaws, right? So how I deal with things now are not always correct, right? So I may work too many hours in the office, or I may not get enough rest, or I may all these things. So I think learning about these specific flaws and being able to address them is really, really important. So I think being able to do that and having that mental resilience is is important. Danny, it is always a pleasure to speak to you. You are still one of my favourite guests to have come on the podcast. You're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast. And I really you, appreciate mate. you having me, Freddie, and keep up the great work. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Danny for coming back and checking in with me. I'll put some links to where you can find out more about the brilliant work Danny does, where to follow him on social media, and to where to, and where to watch that Lad Bible video in full in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this podcast a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues or family about it. 
If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or go to our link tree, that's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.